It's a, quote, collection of resources, a community, and an ethos. All of us are still working chefs. So there are very few millionaires out there because they started to charge for their podcast. There, there are a couple. So first, let's look on the sunny side. Then we'll look on the, you know, the dark side. How am I going to trust a website? Very prone to sexy topic syndrome, which I'm coining right now. This is the Downeast EM Podcast. All right. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Downeast EM Podcast. I am very particularly happy today. I'm joined by a special guest, Matt Delaney. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for the invite. So I am an associate professor and the associate program director at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. I've got some main roots. So I trained at my medical center and then worked in the area, worked at Mercy Hospital in Portland for a little while before I was sucked back down south. And uh, I've got an interest in foam. Um, So I kind of trained in the era where foam or free access open medical education came around and have been fortunate enough to play a little role in it. So I've had some blogs and some podcasts and really more just an avid consumer more than anything else. But uh, yeah, Jason, thanks for the invite, man. This is a a topic near and dear to my heart and I'm pumped to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks thanks for joining us. I think you're the perfect person's uh, brain to be picking on this. So as Matt alluded to, as Matt mentioned, we're going to be talking about foam today. And he did, uh, did outline the acronym, but for those who are not in the know on it, FOAM is Free Open Access Medical Education. It is rumored that the term was coined in a pub in Dublin uh, during the ICEM conference, but I don't know. I never heard anyone confirm that reality. I know that Joe Lex mentioned that he was at that pub, but I don't think he was part of the founding of the term FOAM. But the term itself, really, it's, it's a pretty nebulous entity. It's hard to define. Uh, the Life in the Fast Lane states that it's a, quote, collection of resources, a community, and an ethos, which I feel almost confuses it more in my mind. It, it's, it's hard to outline exactly what it is. Um, so, Matt, before we get into how foam works in resident education, can you tell me for you what is foam? Yeah, I've heard that same rumor that it started in a pub in Ireland, and that, that could be true. It's plausible, but... You know, I've seen foam grow, and I think for me what foam is is really this energy, this movement to have really first-class, cutting-edge education that's accessible, that's open, both for people who want to make it. So if you want to be an educator or have a really good idea or just work in a community shop and have a topic that you're really pumped about, foam is accessible. You can get some stuff out there. And I think for the us as consumers, it's it's typically free. It's typically open. And so – this kind of this ethos, when I first, I've seen that definition before, it's a little bit weird, but I think it really is important to, it does kind of encompass what the foam movement is, which is just folks typically, or primarily within emergency medicine, pushing out really good educational content. Right. And I think that is interesting that you mentioned that it, it generally is free, but there are certain ones that kind of toe the line, right? People that are creating products like this, it's resource intensive, both in terms of your time, your intellectual input. And then the product that you're putting out there has an element of, you know, cost and resource intensivity. So some people are using, you know, a a small monthly subscription to cover the cost of production. And I don't know, what do you think? Does that still fit in the category? Would you still consider those resources foam? Yeah, that's where it gets really, really tricky. So I, I think absolutely to do consistently really high quality work, there's a cost, I mean, there's a cost to pay to get a SoundCloud subscription. If you want to host a podcast, you've got to pay something. 
Um, if you look at some of the podcasts like MRAP that have paved the way for, I would argue, the foam movement, they hire dozens of people. I mean, you've got sound engineers and producers, and there's a big cost to run the website. And so foam, I think, is technically going to be a free resource. But when we're looking at who's pushing the needle for cutting-edge education, you do see a lot of folks who now there's some cost associated with it, whether it's just to get CME um, or whether you have limited access to episodes. And so, yeah, that's that's a, a fine hair to split. Some people come down really firmly that if it's not free and fully accessible, then it's not technically foam. And I personally disagree. I just think that there are going to be some inherent costs. I mean, there's opportunity costs, right? I mean, you and I are taking time out of our day to do this. Um, and so I think this free thing is a really good thing to keep in mind. But I'm not a purist to the point that I would say, nope, I don't use a resource. I don't categorize it as foam if there's a cost associated. Because I think that's the reality is that things do cost money. And quality, you got to pay for quality sometimes. Right, for sure. And I my line that I'd probably, you know, the line in the sand for me is if you're profiting off the production, that's, that's slightly different than, you know, paying for sound production, paying for editing, paying for the access, the, you know, the service that you're trying to distribute through there's cost to your production, which you don't need to swallow if you're trying to create foam. But if you're getting a salary out of it, I feel like that should probably be disclosed. Yeah. And I mean, I know a fair amount of folks who work on podcasts uh, and I've worked on some podcasts that have the paid model and all of us are still working shifts. So there are very few millionaires out there <laughs> because they started to charge for their podcast. There, there are a couple, but, but I think most people really are saying, Hey, can I do something I like? Can I consistently put it out there? And for me, I've tried to launch podcasts and the consistency is the part that's really hard. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's easier to do it if you have somebody who can do the editing, who can run your website. I um, mean, that stuff costs money. So I, I agree with you. I think and that's that ethos of foam. If your goal is to put education out there, I'd say, sure, come under the foam umbrella. If your goal is to get rich, which very few people within this podcast, asynchronous world, that's their goal. I, I, I could see that that would be a little outside the boundaries of foam. For sure. And so the majority of this conversation is really going to be about how does foam fit into med ed, into GME, graduate medical education, and really we're honing in on our residents here. So we want to learn or talk with you about how to use foam appropriately for resident education. So first, let's look on the sunny side. Then we'll look on you know the dark side. Matt, what do you see as the advantages of foam? There are a couple of huge ones on the resident side and even on the kind of continuing ed side. So first off, it's open and easy to access. So when I sat down with my new interns last week, I said, let me pop up these three websites. These are high-yield resources. They don't have to log in. They don't have to subscribe. So it's, it's very easy to get. One of the big things that I think cuts both ways is that foam dramatically reduces the knowledge translation time. If we look in the education literature, the, the time it takes for something to come out and be accepted and then be implemented into widespread practice is on the order of years. I've heard 17 years thrown around. So mm -hmm. there's, there's this big gap in terms of knowledge translation, and foam cuts that down. Now, sometimes that cuts it down inappropriate, to an inappropriately short time period, but it gets information out there quickly. Some the other benefits that I've seen is foam has a very good layer of peer review, or at least high quality foam resources do. And this gets kind of debated and people kind of poo poo. Well, what am I going to, how am I going to trust a website? But if you look at, you know, Michelle Lynn puts out academic life and emergency medicine and they do a pre-release peer review process with two peer reviewers. And then after things are released, people can comment on the post and that gives you some post-release editorial oversight. So actually the level of peer review you get with a high quality foam resource, I would put up there, I would put past a lot of the core text we use in emergency medicine where somebody just writes a chapter and sends it in. 
For sure. And I, I think even if we're going past textbooks and looking at the other ways that we've translated uh, knowledge to our to our learners and to ourselves as attendings, you know, the peer review process, as you said, is sometimes getting, you know, people are turning their nose up at it. But comparing it to how we peer review for journal articles, this, I think that we're we're on the cutting edge in terms of the ability to get that translation, get that information out there and get feedback to the uh, authors about it and self-correcting as a community. So while people of naysay the way that foam has come out without a great peer review process, if we hold it up as a litmus test against what we've done already with journal articles, I think that it might even be better. I was wondering your opinion on that. I couldn't agree more. I think the way that most journals peer review things is garbage. Um, you know, you, you send something in, you work on something, you send it in, and you get some blinded reviews from people, and you don't know who's reviewing it. I don't know if it's one of my partners. I don't know if it's somebody who, you know, hates the topic that I've written on. And I think with Foam, it's it's open, it's accessible. And most of the sites that are putting out good peer-reviewed Foam material, you can read exactly who reviewed this, exactly what they thought. And I think that I think that that's a model we should strive for. Um, you take a lot of the kind of hidden aspects of, of traditional peer review out of the picture and say, hey, listen, let's just get this right before we release it to people. Or if we get it wrong, let's get it afterwards. And so, yeah, I mean, I've kind of just weathered the, the poo-poos of people who say, oh, this is just writing on, an, on a website. But I, I think what it's morphed into really is a reputable peer review process. Yeah. All right. Excellent. What about some any other advantages that you see for Foam? Yeah, I think there, there are two other ones. One is the idea, and this was kind of out of that story that, well, it's it's foam. We we made this up in a bar, and there's foam on the top of a beer. And this 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 idea that high-quality resources will float to the top. Mm. Um, I think that that's largely true in foam. So there are a ton of different podcasts coming out. Tons of people have different websites. But, but consistently, year in and year out, I think the high-quality resources, we find them. They kind of rise to the top. They're the ones that, that everybody's kind of talking about. And I think that's nice. I mean, most of these don't have to get advertisers. So if you look at a journal, you know, the big journals really have the highest number of people that are paying for ads. And I think you take that out of foam and it's almost a a fair playing field or an even playing field for resources to say, hey, if you've got something really good you want to say, you can put it out there. You can get on Twitter and get 20,000 followers. Mm -hmm. So I I like that. And I think the, the last benefit is that if you're an educator, if you're a resident or medical student and you're really passionate about teaching or want to explain something in a different way, all you really need is a, a smartphone. I mean, you could launch a blog or a podcast from a phone. So it's a very low barrier of entry. Um, and, and that lets people kind of early in their careers or, you know, again, as, as med students or residents really get in on this movement without having to kind of work their way up for years and years. That makes sense to me. That's I would have to agree. I think that sort of list is, is good. And it, it's going to get into that sort of double-edged sword when we start talking about the downsides. But just to sort of summarize what you're saying, you're talking about it being open and easily accessible to learners. It takes a process that is really behind the times in terms of taking something new, cutting edge, some new information and getting it to the patient's bedside. As you said, it you know I've heard information about it taking 17 years. This is a much quicker transition time. And then there's definitely a pre and post peer review process, which you mentioned initially, probably just with your staff and then afterward with the phone community and how the good things float to the top. I actually have a little bit of a bone to pick with that slightly when we get into downsides. And finally, you mentioned that there's just kind of a low barrier for people that want to get into these types of things, low barrier for uh, entry as an educator. Is that fair? That's it, man. Yeah. 
All right, so we talked about the the pros. We talked about the sunny side of it. And again, it's a double-edged sword, so let's talk about the downsides. Matt, what do you see as sort of the negatives of foam? I think there are three things or three holes that I personally have fallen into. The first one is the, I call the appearance of quality. So there are some resources that have come, and some of them have gone. Some of them are still there that look really slick. So people are really good with web design or very good with kind of their sound design. So you hear it and you're like, man, this person knows what they're talking about. This is a high quality resource. And then when you really start to dig, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Um, There are several sites, there are several posts that I've seen where when you go to look at the sources and you kind of click on what they, what they cite, the source actually says the opposite of what they've said. Mm. And so I think that, you know, I think the foam kind of self-policing post-release editorial process helps with this. But again, I'm very susceptible to things that look cool or very slick. And so this appearance of quality, I think, can can be a big issue. The The other thing is the risk of early adoption. And we talked about this knowledge translation time. And I think you and I would agree that 17 years is way too long to realize that we need to kind of change how we take care of patients with sepsis. Um, but I think one day after something's released may be a little too early in a lot of cases. And I work with residents. I know when I was a resident at Maine Med that I was a horrible early adopter. <laughs> um, you know, I would I would just hear something and immediately go and shift and try to do it. Yeah. And th- that's probably not right. In fact, most of the time, that's not the right way to do it. Um, I think, you know, really sexy, dramatic topics. I mean, we're all talking about ECMO now. You can't listen to a, a podcast that doesn't mention ECMO. We don't really need to do ECMO that often. Um, <laughs> most hospitals, you can't do ECMO that often. And so, um, you know, this risk of early adoption, I think it's either clinically we're adopting it too soon. We're rolling things out before they're ready for prime time or even educationally. You know, mm-hmm. I, I like ECMO. I think it's kind of cool. But if I'm a third year resident, I don't need to be reading everything I can get about ECMO. I need to be learning about you know, the bread and butter stuff as well. And so, you know, early adoption, again, you don't want to be the last person to start doing something, but being the first has significant risks. And I think foam kind of pushes a lot of us naturally towards let, let's be some of the early adopters. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, I, as you mentioned, you know, we need to be able to translate our information out on, on important topics like sepsis. And, and I thought you were going to go down the, uh, the sepsis cocktail road as an early adoption example with there was such a buzz about that, right? The the sepsis cocktail worked great in that single study done by the author who created the cocktail. And foam proliferated the idea anyway, even to where it was going out to people that weren't really even in medicine or medicine medical education. Um, so I I think that's an example of where people, it can spread like wildfire. If, if the foam community gets a hold of it, it can get out there quickly. And as you said, residents are prone to an early adoption there. I never saw someone recommend or go down the road of trying to, to do the sepsis cocktail, but I think that's an example of, of where a topic can really spread without great backing for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the history of medicine is littered with things that we thought were a really good idea that turned out to not be a really good idea. I mean, sepsis alone, when I was a resident, everybody got Zygris, the mm-hmm. activated protein C, and this was kind of in the early days of foam, and this was getting pushed out there. It's off the market now. I mean, I think we're killing people. And so, yeah, I mean, you just look at anything that gets a big push, especially now in the era of social media, I think we have to be careful. Are we, are we getting on the train too early? Mm-hmm. And, and coming back to the pro side of that, though, if you really paid attention and stuck through using that example, there was a great deal of, of 
backlash or, or whatever term you'd want to use, uh, counter argument against the use of you know the thiamine vitamin C cocktail because it was such a small study, such a huge effect size that it needed to be validated. So you can see the the two sides of the coin there and that sort of um, peer review process, that post-production peer review really came to light in that example as well. Yeah, I mean, and sepsis is a great topic because we have so many septic patients, but there are cases where early adoption is really important. Uh, when the process trial, when we, we got the data that said that the original Rivers trial had parts of care that we don't need to do, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need to put a central line in everybody. We don't need to transduce CVPs in everybody. That needed to come out. I mean, that, that was stuff we were doing that was likely harming patients, but certainly extra care. And that was a good time for the phone world to push out and say, hey, this thing we've done for years, we should stop doing. And I've seen we've stopped that. And I think that that's a, you know, it, it can be good to get that message out fast and furious, but not all the time. Right, right. Okay. And so uh, appearance of quality, a shiny new toy that has no depth to it, no no quality after the the top layer, the risk of early adoption, any other uh, downsides of foam? Yeah, the, the other big downside that I run into a lot is is termed filter failure. And it's the idea, I I really like foam and I've got different ways that I get it kind of pushed to me and I can pull information, but it can get overwhelming. If you pulled up my phone right now and looked at my, my Feedly app, there's probably 200 different posts that I haven't read. And it's, it's hard for me to consistently keep up with the resources that I really want to follow because I personally just follow too many. Um, you know, on Twitter, I get overwhelmed with the amount of information. And so I think one of the downfalls as you're trying to figure out how does foam fit into your kind of educational approach is to figure out how do I get a steady stream of information that I can keep up with that's balanced or kind of fills the holes in my education that I need filled without becoming overwhelmed. Because again, I get pumped up about stuff. I just go online and say, these are 20 blogs I want to follow. I can't keep up with that. So I think balancing, you know, let me get a good trickle of foam or steady stream without turning the fire hose fully on is, is a really important thing to think about. That makes sense. Yeah, that's that's fair. And I I try to I'm one that will minimize those types of things. But even as someone that tries to keep it to, you know, 100 or 200 followers on Twitter, uh, followings on Twitter or, or only, you know, the six or seven podcasts that I really love, you still can't keep up. And in that way, you're also missing, right? There's there's great content being produced out there that you're not exposing yourself to if you wall yourself off to a limited number. So it's, again, a double edged sword. Yeah, and it's. I think that's just a, a constant balancing act. Again, the podcast. I mean, I probably listen to forty hours of podcasts a month at double speed. So I love podcasts. But you're right. I mean, if I stick with the same ones every month, I'm missing ones that that come out. So yeah, it's an ongoing struggle. Mm-hmm. So then, how do we take? You know, our residents are they're getting exposed to it, whether we like it or not. Almost like your children, right? You know that they're going to be uh, getting exposed to social media whether you, as best you can, try to pr- protect them from the elements thereof. So how can we combat these negative elements of foam that our residents are going to be exposed to? I think if the first thing is just actually embrace the foam movement. I don't think this is a flash in the pan. I think this is here to stay, and I think it's very clear to those of us who follow it. So if you're an attending, if you're an educator, th- they're going to do this. Like you said, we can't keep them away from this. So first off is I think point people towards good resources. So resources that have been around for a while are probably going to be the most reliable. The things that I look for when I'm looking at a a website or a podcast is do you have a solid track record? So do you have more than one episode? Do you have an episode each month? I mean, those, 
those are actually, if you think about it, a marker of quality. Um, I may, in a, in a flash of brilliance, make one really good podcast. Um, that's totally different than Rob Orman, who puts out four really good episodes every month. And so, you know, the quality, can you consistently bring out high quality material, I think is important. The peer review structure is important, and this is a little harder to figure out, especially with podcasts, but for a lot of, a lot of sites. So Rebel EM does a very good job of having a very clear, open peer review structure. Academic Life in EM does a really good job. Life in the Fast Lane does a really good job, and all of those have been around for a while. So I think trusting and using resources that have a solid track record of productivity and also a, a good peer review structure, I think is the first and probably the most important step. Other thing to try to do from the educator side, and we're doing this now, we're, we're launching our asynchronous curriculum for residents, is to try to balance foam with the traditional kind of educational resources. And I get the fact that Rosen's is three books, and it's really boring to read all three books. I get that Tentonales is big, um, and it's tempting to say, I'll just go online and, and, and read what I want to read or read what I need to get. But I think it's important to realize that not everything is going to be covered in the foam world. It's getting to where we're almost at the point where we have a kind of online textbook or something that's equivalent, but I don't, I don't think we're there yet. Um, and so I think for core educational content, really the, the textbooks have some value. And I think also balancing, you know, it's really great when Rebel EM releases a review of an article. I think it's really important that we still also get the primary literature and, and break that down ourselves and discuss that. So I think this balance between what the phone world offers us and then what we've traditionally done. And I don't know the right balance. The, the RRC has said that we can only do 20% asynchronous or foam. I think that probably the right balance is higher than that. Um, but I think that there is probably some value still to doing what we've always done and then kind of blending transitioning into this foam world. For sure. And I think you actually probably pulled out another sort of dark side of, of foam uh, that that's worth mentioning is this kind of, you know, it's sexy topic prone, right? It's going to be something that they're going to talk about sepsis and heart attack and things like that. You're not going to get a lot of dermatologic or or pediatric. You know, we did a, a pedzotitis media uh, post for our, our podcast and it didn't get a ton of hits because it's it's simple kind of bread and butter core content, which doesn't go out into foam quite as well. So you lose some of that core content and it's very prone to sexy topic syndrome, which I'm coining right now. I like it, man. Yeah. I mean, it, show me a resource that tells you how to take care of a paronychia. Um, I mean, I think I got out in practice before I saw a paronychia and I was like, I, I'm not familiar with what this is. Uh, and so, so you're right. Yeah. Stuff we see, otitis media, stuff we see all the time. That's very important to talk about. It's hard to get, you know, all the listeners, it's hard to get such a groundswell for that when really that's, that's way more practical than a lot of the stuff that gets tons of hits. For sure. For sure. All right. So in helping our residents, we're going to kind of lead them to water, right? If you want them to find the high quality resources, you don't just open, you know, give them a browser and let them go, but you lead them to the ones that you believe in good peer review, solid track record, trusted resource. And then you're going to take that, mix it in, stir it in a pot, balance it with your traditional reading and then anything else that we need to do to help our, our residents appropriately use foam. What I've tried to do is is be very clear with this is how I get the information and this is how I think you can avoid that that filter failure of being overwhelmed. And so for, for our residents, I say get something that's pushed to you. And we use journal feeds, a free email. We can give you the links. But every day you get a, one article, a synopsis of an article emailed to you. So that's you're getting information pushed. 
and then we get them set up on Feedly or RSS feed reader. And so we say, here, we want you to pick out of this list of 10 different resources, pick a couple of these, and this is going to be your pull information. So every day or once a week, you log in on your phone, and these are your resources. And then let's pick a podcast or two. As a program, we have two that we listen to. And so we kind of start out by saying, here's the kind of framework of pull and push information. These are the resources we think are high quality. And if you want to go above and beyond, that's awesome. But when we build that core, here's the information we think you need to get, it, it hopefully buffers a little bit against this filter failure because that's a consumable amount of information you're not getting overwhelmed with what, with what you're getting on your phone each day. Yeah, Matt, that's perfect. Perfect explanation, I think, of sort of ways to lead our residents into and introduce them to foam, which I don't think they talk enough about. You know, we kind of just say, have at it. You Here's your textbook, here's your curriculum, uh, and we'll see you weekly to do so. Uh, how you learn outside of that is up to you. I think we, as educators, should take the onus on that and show them the world and show them how to assess it and access it. And I think that's a great approach that you outlined there. But So as we kind of come to a close, Matt, let's set up a hypothetical here. You, Matt Delaney, you draw the golden ticket, and it's in a magical world I created. You alone get to dictate how the future of foam plays out, and you craft medical education, how it will be, the next 15 years what future do you craft and specifically what role do you see foam playing in that future yeah it's a great question uh the first thing i would do is throw out the golden ticket i don't want to be the guy that, that calls this shot at all but um <laughs> so anyone that wants a ticket is welcome to it um you know the the two things that i really would love to see and i think we're moving that way is i'd like to get rid of in-person lectures i think the model of I come in or my residents come in and sit in a chair for four hours on ours or on Thursday and listen to me or somebody else talk, I think is it does not educate well. Um, I think there's a value in in-person meetings, and that's a lot of this kind of flipped classroom movement. You know, you get the resources ahead of time, come in and we can kind of talk about it, discuss it, go through cases. But I would love to see the days of you watching me click through a PowerPoint die. I, don't th I just don't think it's that helpful. And the RRC, again, we can do 20% of didactics that way now. I, I don't have any back alley knowledge, but my impression is that as we get this down better, that number should creep higher. So get rid of lectures. And then textbooks, I think, are problematic. I think that knowledge translation time, by the time a textbook chapter comes out, it's already out of date in a lot of instances. We talked briefly. I don't think that there's currently a resource out there in the foam world that can replace a textbook, although there are several sites, there are several resources that are getting close, and there's some stuff on the horizon that I think will we'll get there. And I think the value there is not that we just get rid of Tentnalis or Rosens. Um, I think the value is that we have a dynamic resource. So if you write the chapter on sepsis and a new study comes out, or um, the AHA comes out with new guidelines, that you can actually adjust that, that, that the author can go back in and update it, and you can get some some kind of you can get more timely updates. And so I think getting rid of textbooks or having an electronic or kind of a more fluid textbook with the same rigorous peer review, I think would be really beneficial. But yeah, that's me. No lectures, no textbooks. That's that's what I would do if forced to use this golden ticket. Wow. Well, first, very noble of you to give up the golden ticket. Willy Wonka would be impressed. I think that you would win, actually. It's like giving over the everlasting gobstopper at the end. You've yeah, they all died valuable. on the... They died on the tour, man. So I'm not, you know, it's, the odds are that you're going to die if you get the golden tickets. I'm That's not interested. That's true. In yeah, it's like one in seven chance that you survive that. Um, 
But uh, that's interesting. I'm sure a lot of people uh, stood up out of their seats, or hopefully they did if they're paying attention, that you want to get rid of in-person lectures and get rid of textbooks. That is a very different world, and I appreciate your your uh, tenacity to sort of really turn the education as we do it now sort of on its head. That's I like the idea we can use technology to sort of decrease that translation time, like you said, with new articles coming out and getting to our residents, but still maintain that pre- and post peer review process that's that's interesting and i would i would get into your world i would i would be a resident in matt delaney's future it'd be just you and me man but uh <laughs> no i mean i i think foam has come a really long way since the the term came out a couple of years ago and i think this there's such a groundswell behind this movement and will we get to where i want us to get i don't know um, it could come sooner than we think, but I think we've got to keep pushing because there are a lot of really high quality resources out there now. I think we've we finally got the horsepower we need to really get somewhere. Perfect. I agree totally. So as we wrap up, Matt, just to sort of go over what we were talking about, foam as an entity, free open access medical education. It has a lot of pros and cons, right? It has a good side and a dark side. The goods that we outlined were sort of, you know, open, easy to access for our, our learners. Uh, it takes something that's published and gets it to the learner's ears or eyes or uh, minds very quickly. So very you know, decreased uh, knowledge translation time compared to a traditional paper or textbook. There's some peer review, both pre and a lot of post-production peer review where people are critiquing and adding comments. We talked about how the high-quality things should probably float to the top. And then it's easy to get into if you're an educator and you want to get in this world – very few barriers to do so. On the downside, the negatives, you can have a shiny new you know, podcast with a great introduction and a lot of cool sound editing with no depth, no quality to it. It's going to possibly lead to us adopting things earlier, uh, things that may not, you know, that need more vetting, like we talked about the sepsis cocktail. Uh, there's so much to it that you can kind of get lost, get lost in the mix and not really see the quality things. Talk about filter failure. And then we talked about sort of the sexy, sexy topic syndrome where it's not conducive to learning some basic medical education. And then sort of the ways to use it for our residents is that we want to lead them to water. We want to lead them to the high quality resources first so they see what good foam looks like. And we want them to sort of mix that in with their traditional learning. And then also teach them, have a strategy in place to help them with that filter failure process to find the good stuff, weed out the negative, and use it sort of lifelong, as you mentioned. It's not just for resident education, but really should be part of CME. Is that fair? I couldn't have said it better. Perfect. Well, Matt, you are a pleasure to talk with. I, again, I can't wait to live in your world 15 years from now when there's no in-person lectures and the textbooks have all been thrown away. Until next time, guys, thanks for joining us. Matt, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. That's all for the Down ECM podcast for now. If you like what you hear, please hop over to iTunes, throw us some stars, give us a review. It really, really helps us. Also, we would love to hear your ideas about how we can make the podcast better, any topics you like to cover, anything that you think would help your listening experience. You can check out more of what we have to offer at our blog, downeastem.org, and you can follow us on Twitter where our handle is at downeastem. Until next time.